Hi again, and welcome back to the Physiology by Physio podcast. This is one of the newest shows from Inside the Boards, uh, and it'll help you get a better handle on physiology and pathophysiology concepts for the USMLE and Comlex. This will be our first episode in a series on GI. Uh, so in this one, we're going to cover a lot of the anatomy and the basic components of digestion and absorption, focusing on what happens between mostly the mouth, the esophagus, the stomach, and the duodenum, so kind of like the foregut area. Uh, in this episode, I focus mostly on carbohydrate digestion and absorption, just to help the discussion move a little more smoothly from one segment to the next. So, are you feeling ready to start? Okay, well, we'll dive right into things with some basic definitions. Okay, so to start out with some definitions, uh, digestion is basically the process of preparing the contents of our food for absorption by the body, and absorption is the process of bringing nutrients into the body from the GI lumen, uh, which is technically outside of the body. Uh, digestion involves both mechanical and enzymatic processes. So uh, where does mechanical digestion usually begin? Well, you could probably argue that it starts on the dinner plate with a fork and knife, but mechanical digestion really begins in the mouth. Our teeth grind and tear up foodstuffs into smaller pieces. Additionally, in the mouth and throughout the GI tract, foodstuffs are constantly being mixed up and churned into smaller, more homogenous bits, and this aids in digestion. So speaking of chewing, the process of chewing food is actually facilitated by the actions of the muscles of mastication, which are the temporalis, masseter, medial, and lateral pterygoids. And those muscles are innervated by the mandibular branch of the trigeminal nerve, otherwise known as V3. So digestion of carbohydrates begins in the mouth. And can you tell me the enzyme that mediates the absorption of carbohydrates starting in the mouth? Well, it's salivary amylase. So salivary amylase begins the enzymatic breakdown of large carbohydrate molecules, like starches, into smaller carbohydrate units. So where is saliva produced? Saliva is produced mainly by the parotid, submandibular, and sublingual glands, otherwise known as the salivary glands. And what nerves provide parasympathetic input to those major salivary glands, and what are their associated ganglia? So cranial nerve 9 supplies parasympathetic input to the parotid gland, and it is associated with the otic ganglion. Cranial nerve 7 provides parasympathetic input to the submandibular and sublingual glands, and it's associated with the geniculate ganglion. And a way that I try to remember this is um, G is the seventh letter of the alphabet, so the geniculate ganglion is associated with the seventh cranial nerve. Another point I wanted to bring up about saliva is that saliva is important for our immunity. Saliva contains important agents like secretory IgA and lysozyme, and these help to fight off foreign invaders. Saliva also moistens food, and this aids in the process of swallowing. Speaking of the process of swallowing, the starches start to get broken down by salivary amylase in the mouth, and then the food is swallowed. Swallowing is initially a voluntary action, then the involuntary swallow reflex is initiated, as the food reaches the pharynx. This involuntary reflex is mediated mainly by cranial nerves 9 and 10, and then the food is propelled down from the mouth through the esophagus via peristalsis. Peristalsis is another important thing to know about. Peristalsis is really a wave-like motion 
that propagates food down a tube. So try to picture it in your mind. Uh, food is traveling through a tube, and as it encounters an area and stretches the wall of the tube, there's this reflexive contraction of the tube's wall behind the food bolus um, that's mediated by acetylcholine, and that propels the food forward. At the same time, there's a relaxation and dilation of the tube's wall in front of the food, and the dilation is mediated by nitric oxide, and this helps to drag the food forward. So it's both being pushed from behind and dragged forward. This process repeats like a propagating wave as the food bolus moves down the GI tract, and then food boluses are also mixed up within different portions of the GI tract to allow for better digestion and absorption. Okay, so where are we now? Starches are being broken down into smaller pieces and propelled to the stomach by peristalsis. It takes about 10 seconds to get from the mouth to the stomach. So in the stomach, uh, not much happens to carbohydrates here, mostly just mixing and churning that I mentioned. To facilitate all this mixing and churning that I've talked about, the stomach is kind of special in that it has three muscularis externa layers. Can you name them? Well, from the outside in, they are the outermost longitudinal, the middle circular, and the innermost oblique layers. This is different from the rest of the GI tract, which has its smooth muscle arranged in two layers, inner circular and outer longitudinal. And I would recommend saying that to yourself like a hundred times to keep it straight. Inner circular, outer longitudinal. So that was the layers of the muscularis externa, but can you describe the orientation of the other parts of the GI wall? Well, from inside out, they are the mucosa, submucosa, muscularis externa, and serosa. A decent mnemonic to remember this is just MSMS, and if you say that to yourself a hundred times, it might stick too. Okay, so not much happens regarding carbohydrate digestion in the stomach. Food remains in the stomach for about one to three hours until it hits the first part of the small intestine, which is the duodenum. Food passes through the pylorus of the stomach into the duodenum. For carbohydrate digestion and breakdown, pancreatic enzymes in the duodenum are what do the rest of the work for carbohydrate absorption. Alright, now let's talk about what happens to those pancreatic juices. So signals like secretin, vagal input, and CCK all tell the pancreas to release its wonderful juices. And those juices travel from the excrement glands of the pancreas through the pancreatic duct and meet up with bile from the common bile duct. And together, uh, the pancreatic juices are injected into the duodenum through the ampulla of water, which is also the site of the major duodenal papilla. And in which part of the duodenum is the ampulla of water? Well, it's in the second or descending portion of the duodenum, which is actually a retroperitoneal. Now, as we're thinking about carbohydrate digestion, pancreatic amylase is finally in the lumen of the small intestine, and it helps to break down larger carbohydrates into smaller oligosaccharides. Then, these oligosaccharides are further broken down by brush border enzymes. Can you think of any brush border enzymes? Well, good examples are lactase and sucrase, or maltase, and lactase, sucrase, and maltase generate monosaccharides, 
which can be absorbed by transporters on the apical or luminal membrane of enterocytes. And what does lactase do? Well, lactase converts lactose into glucose and galactose. So for a tangent here, uh, primary deficiency of lactase, um, where you either have a defective enzyme or reduced expression with age, a uh, defective enzyme is called congenital alactasia, and that's more of a rare condition. Uh, reduced expression with age is also called lactase non-persistence, and it's estimated that nearly two-thirds of adults experience lactase non-persistence to some degree. It's most common in East Asians. So that's lactase. Now, what about sucrase? What does sucrase do? Sucrase converts sucrose into glucose and fructose. And what about maltase? Maltase converts maltose into two glucose molecules. So those are just a few of the important brush border enzymes for carbohydrate metabolism. Lactase, sucrase, and maltase. Once sugars are broken down into monosaccharides, they can be absorbed by the enterocytes, and there are a couple of transporters that you need to know about. The first one is SGLT1, and the other is GLUT5. So what does SGLT1 do? SGLT1 couples the downstream movement of sodium to enhance glucose and galactose absorption. What about GLUT5? So GLUT5 facilitates the absorption of fructose. Once in the enterocyte, all three of these monosaccharides, glucose, galactose, and fructose, will exit the enterocyte at the basolateral membrane through GLUT2, and GLUT2 takes them from the enterocyte and passes them into the blood. So to summarize from the top, salivary amylase starts breaking down carbohydrates into oligosaccharides, then they pass through the stomach to the small intestine. Once in the small intestine, carbohydrates are further broken down by pancreatic amylase and brush border enzymes like lactase, which produce monosaccharides. Then, the monosaccharides are then absorbed into the enterocyte through transporters like SGLT1 or GLUT5. Then, the monosaccharides pass from the enterocyte into the blood through GLUT2. Okay, hey guys, it's Greg again from Inside the Boards, and I'd like to give a quick plug for our sponsor this week, which is Physio. So a couple of years ago, Physio burst onto the scene of medical education with their physiology course, which proved that they kind of know what they're doing as medical educators. And since then, they've just continued to make improvements and produce more valuable content for their subscribers. Not only have they produced physiology content that they fashioned in kind of a similar manner to the Pathoma whiteboard style lectures, but they've also produced a course for biochem and biostats and even more. And they're currently working on a high yield micro course for the boards, which they fashioned after the sketchy style. So I've got to say that I'm really impressed with the work that they're doing at Physio. And I love the idea of having Pathoma style content, conceptual learning, integrated together with sketchy style memorization tools. And it's all housed together in one sleek platform on Physio. Oh, and did I also mention that they also produced a textbook that they continually update and you get free with your subscription? So there's no need to furiously write down notes. It's already written down for you in a nice and neat manner. So you can just kind of go with the flow of the videos. Anyways, I'm really excited to be working with the guys from Physio on this collaborative podcast. 
Now, I want you to stick around for the rest of the episode so that you can hear about a discount code for your physio subscription that we at Inside the Boards were able to secure for you, the listener. But for now, let's get back to the show. Okay, now I'll hand things off to the guys from Physio and have them provide just a slightly different perspective on how to think about the mouth, the esophagus, the stomach, and the duodenum, and how all that physiology ties together. The first topic is the oral cavity. For step one, you need to know that alpha amylase is an enzyme secreted by the salivary glands and begins the digestion of starch. You also need to know that the salivary glands produce a protein called R-protein, which promotes the absorption of vitamin B12. Okay, after food is chewed and moved to the back of the pharynx, the pharyngeal muscles contract, which initiates swallowing by moving a bolus of food into the esophagus. Once the food enters the esophagus, peristalsis assists in moving the food to the lower esophageal sphincter, or LES. Recall that peristalsis refers to the involuntary contraction and relaxation of smooth muscle, which produces wave-like movements that push the bolus of food forward. At this point, the LES must relax in order for food to move from the esophagus into the stomach. Okay, with this in mind, let's do a few questions. What is the underlying cause associated with formation of a zancher diverticulum? Okay, a zancher diverticulum is a herniation or outpouching of tissue near the pharynx and esophagus. So a diverticulum is just a blind tube coming off the GI tract. In a zancher diverticulum, the pharyngeal muscles have difficulty relaxing and are also spastic. This motor abnormality results in increased intraluminal pressure within the pharynx, causing herniation of the pharyngeal mucosa, resulting in a diverticulum. So, dysmotility causes increased pressure, which results in mucosal herniation. Patients with the zancher diverticulum will often complain of difficulty swallowing because food can get caught in the pouch and then rot, which results in bad breath or halitosis. Okay, let's do another question. What disorder results in a decreased ability of the lower esophageal sphincter to relax? When the LES cannot relax properly, this is known as a disorder called achalasia. Normally, inhibitory ganglion cells present in the walls of the esophagus inhibit contraction of the LES, thus allowing the LES to relax so food can pass from the esophagus into the stomach. So ganglion cells inhibit lower esophageal sphincter contraction. Achalasia is caused by a decreased number of inhibitory ganglion cells within the walls of the esophagus. This means the lower esophageal sphincter, or LES, contracts more than normal which prevents the passage of food from the esophagus into the stomach. So, increased LES contraction. Okay, let's do another question. What is a disorder associated with a transient decrease in tone of the LES? Okay, this is essentially the opposite of the last question. If the LES doesn't contract enough, so it's too relaxed, then acid 
from the stomach can pass up into the esophagus. This is a disorder known as gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD. Okay, the next topic is the stomach. The stomach has six important cells that you need to be familiar with for step one. These include the parietal cells. These are located in the body of the stomach. Also notice that the parietal cells secrete hydrochloric acid, which is responsible for the acidic environment in the stomach, and intrinsic factor, which is necessary for the proper absorption of vitamin B12. As you can see, the chief cells are also located in the body of the stomach and secrete pepsinogen. Pepsinogen gets converted into pepsin when it comes in contact with the acidic environment of the stomach. The G-cell is responsible for producing gastrin. Through a chain of reactions, this eventually stimulates the parietal cell to secrete acid. And the D-cell is responsible for producing somatostatin. And this is a hormone that essentially shuts down the GI tract. Okay, with this in mind, let's discuss the primary functions of the stomach. Okay, the stomach has three primary functions. The first and the only essential function of the stomach is to produce intrinsic factor. As I mentioned earlier, our protein is produced from the salivary glands. When B12 from animal protein enters the stomach, the acid, along with pepsin, separates the protein from vitamin B12, which allows our protein to bind to vitamin B12. Once the R protein B12 complex reaches the duodenum, pancreatic proteases separate the complex. Intrinsic factor, which is produced from the parietal cells, travels down into the duodenum, which can then bind the free vitamin B12. The intrinsic factor B12 complex then travel to the terminal ileum, or the distal ileum, where vitamin B12 is absorbed. For step one, you'll most commonly see questions about parietal cell damage or damage to the terminal ileum. Both of these scenarios can result in vitamin B12 deficiency. Recall that vitamin B12 is necessary for a healthy nervous system, so a B12 deficiency can result in damage to the nervous system, which we cover in more detail in the chapter on neurology. The second function of the stomach is to act as a reservoir for food. By acting as a reservoir, the stomach can regulate how frequently boluses of food enter the duodenum. The last function of the stomach is the secretion of acid by parietal cells. Okay, with this in mind, let's do a few questions. Which cell is inhibited by omeprazole? Recall that omeprazole is a proton pump inhibitor. PPIs work by blocking the hydrogen-potassium ATPase pump on parietal cells. Okay, let's do another question. A patient has a gastrectomy due to gastric cancer and the esophagus is directly sutured to the duodenum. The patient is prophylactically given high doses of vitamin B12 to prevent anemia. What other symptom is the patient likely to have? Okay, from the question stem, we know that the patient had a gastrectomy and the patient has been prescribed high doses of vitamin B12. 
so we don't have to worry about the patient developing anemia. The question asks what other symptom the patient will likely have. The key to getting this question right is remembering that the stomach acts as a reservoir for food and regulates how frequently boluses of food enter the duodenum. If the patient doesn't have a stomach, then large boluses of food can directly enter the small intestine, resulting in a high osmotic load to the GI tract. The high osmotic load can pull in water, which can cause diarrhea. So increased osmotic load results in increased water in the gastrointestinal lumen, which results in diarrhea. Okay, let's do another question. A four-week-old boy presents with non-bilious projectile vomiting. How will this disorder alter his electrolyte concentration? Hopefully from the question stem, you notice that the patient has pyloric stenosis. Pyloric stenosis occurs when the pylorus becomes narrow, which prevents food from moving from the stomach into the duodenum. As food accumulates in the stomach, the child develops projectile vomiting. It's non-bilious because the food hasn't passed into the duodenum, which is where bile enters the GI tract. The excess vomiting results in the loss of stomach acid. Recall that stomach acid is in the form of hydrochloric acid. This means the patient will lose hydrogen ions, so decreased hydrogen, resulting in an alkalosis. The patient will also lose chloride, resulting in hypochloremia. So the patient will develop a metabolic alkalosis with hypochloremia. Okay, and the time has arrived for the big reveal that was promised. For ITB listeners, we were able to secure you a limited time 25% discount if you enter the code ITB25, as in 25%, at checkout. This code is good for 25% off your physio subscription, but it's only valid for one month from the time that this episode airs. So again, that's ITB25 for an exclusive 25% discount on a physio subscription from yours truly at Inside the Boards. And now let's finish out the rest of the episode. All right, guys, and now we will finish out this episode with a board-style practice question. A 50-year-old male visits his primary care physician complaining of intermittent gnawing gastric pain for the last three months. Because the pain is worse with meals, his appetite has declined and he's lost 10 pounds. Past medical history is significant for obesity, GERD, and hyperlipidemia. Workup reveals a positive urease breath test. He's treated for a peptic ulcer using triple therapy, including amoxicillin, clarithromycin, and pantaprazole. Which of the following hormonal responses would you expect to see after initiating his treatment regimen? Is it A, increased CCK, B, increased secretin, C, increased gastrin, or D, increased insulin? And the correct answer is C, increased gastrin. So this patient has a peptic ulcer, which is evidenced by his clinical story and a positive urease breath test, which basically looks to see if H. pylori is present in the stomach. H. pylori is by far the number one cause of peptic ulcers worldwide, and its treatment involves triple therapy with agents like amoxicillin and clarithromycin, both of which are antibiotics to kill the hardy bacteria, plus a proton pump inhibitor like pantaprazole, which will help to relieve the symptoms. 
Alternatively, you could use quadruple therapy like metronidazole plus tetracycline, which are the antimicrobials in that therapy, plus bismuth and a PPI, which are the symptom relievers. Okay, so that's the basics of managing ulcers. Now onto the physiology. So based on this patient's story, where do you think his ulcer is located? In the stomach or in the duodenum? Well, since this is a board's question, we can assume that it's actually in the stomach this time because of his history. So why do I say that? Well, on the boards, if the pain occurs with meals, then they're hinting that the ulcer is in the stomach because of increased acid production that occurs in the stomach as a response to the meal. The extra acidity will irritate the ulcerated mucosa, thus causing pain. But if the pain occurs between meals, then they're hinting that the ulcer is in the duodenum. In response to a meal, bicarb is released into the duodenum to protect it from acidic outflow coming from the stomach. But between meals, the duodenum loses this protective effect of bicarb, thus causing pain between meals in patients who have a peptic ulcer located in the duodenum. Okay, so we covered how the timing of his pain has to do with acid production in the stomach. Now, what regulates this process of acid production? Well, it's a relatively complex interplay of neurohormonal signals in the GI tract, which is what the answer choices we're testing you on. Uh, we're just going to focus on two of the answer choices here, gastrin and secretin. So the correct answer was C, increased gastrin. So what does gastrin do? Well, gastrin is a hormone released by the G cells of the stomach in response to a meal, and gastrin stimulates the parietal cells to begin secreting acid. Gastrin also stimulates gastric motility to churn the contents of the stomach. Anyways, so those are the functions of gastrin. Now, the G cells that produce gastrin in the stomach are responsive to the levels of acid in the stomach. When there's less acid in the stomach, like when food comes in to buffer the acid, then the G cells will ramp up gastrin production to stimulate acid production and gastric motility. Similarly, if we suppress acid production artificially with a drug like pantaprazole, which is a PPI, then gastrin levels will rise as a part of this feedback loop to try and compensate for the diminished stomach acidity. So the correct answer in this case was C, increased gastrin. Probably the best distractor was B, increased secretin. So what does secretin do? Well, secretin is a hormone produced by the duodenal S cells that rises in response to a meal, and it's kind of like an antagonist to the actions of gastrin. One function of secretin is to actually suppress gastrin production by the G cells of the stomach. By doing this, secretin will suppress acid production from the stomach, and it will slow down gastric emptying. Another important role of secretin is to stimulate the exocrine glands of the pancreas to release bicarbon water, which will be dumped into the duodenum in response to a meal. By slowing down gastric emptying and funneling bicarb into the duodenum, secretin will kind of help to protect the duodenum from the harsh acidic fluids coming from the stomach. Naturally, secretin is part of a feedback loop where higher levels of acidity in the duodenum will trigger higher secretin production. So this brings us back to the answer choices in the question. If we suppress acid production with a PPI, would we expect secretin levels to be higher or lower? Well, we would expect them to be lower because we don't have much acid in the duodenum, so we don't need as much secretin to slow down the stomach and to get bicarb into the duodenum. Okay, guys, so that's it for this practice question. Uh, it was pretty short and sweet, but the interplay between gastrin and secretin will definitely be helpful to know for the boards.
And guess what? That's it for this episode of Physiology by Physio. So I hope the explanations made sense. I hope you learned something and I'll see you guys next time. Uh, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you're enjoying the show and definitely tell your friends about it. See if they can benefit from this all audio learning program too. 